everyone. Welcome to STEM From's podcast, Where Does Your Journey Stem From? Hosted by myself, Dr. Karina Minardi. Today we are joined by an exceptional scientist and guest, Jennifer, who is currently a graduate student at the University of Pittsburgh. Let's welcome to the stage, Jennifer. Hey, Jennifer. Hello, happy to be here. Yay, we're happy to have you. Jennifer is a PhD candidate in bioengineering at the University of Pittsburgh. She previously earned her BS in biomedical engineering from Virginia Commonwealth University in her hometown of Richmond, Virginia. Her current work in the Rehab Neural Engineering Labs, RNEL, studies mechanistic changes in the brain after a stroke, which can lead to visual spatial attention and upper limb motor dysfunction. The ultimate goal of this work is to develop technology-driven rehabilitation protocols and tools to facilitate stroke recovery. Jennifer is deeply passionate about STEM outreach to her local community, undergraduate mentorship, and inclusion of women in historically marginalized groups in STEM spaces. Outside of the lab, she enjoys rock climbing, crocheting, and hiking. The girl after my own heart. Love it. Well, we are excited to have you, Jennifer. And the first question that we usually start off our, with our guests is tell us a little bit about you personally, about yourself and your background. Yeah, so like my bio says, I am born and raised in Richmond, Virginia. Um, so my parents immigrated from China before I was born. Um, they opened up a restaurant. My dad is a sushi chef. My mom was a waitress. And um, like a lot of immigrant parents, what they really wanted to do is just work really hard to make sure that the next generation, so me, I'm the only child, um, could have an easier, more comfortable life. And their way of ensuring that was always emphasizing education. So they never really like specifically pointed me in any um, like specific career. Uh, but they always, always said that education was um, one of the most important things. Um, and so all throughout school, um, I uh, actually got a lot of support from um, like my peers, my friends, um, since my parents themselves, they didn't have um, a whole lot of education completed before they immigrated. Um, they don't have a background in STEM. Uh, we don't even speak English at home. So we speak Cantonese at home. Um, and so basically anytime I had a question about school, I would like run to my friends and be like, oh, what was that on the homework? Like help me with this. And then we would like help each other out. Um, so I really got a lot of support from um, my peers. And I also learned a lot from watching PBS Kids because um, we didn't have cable. So Cyber Chase was my go-to uh, show after school. Uh, learned a lot about math there. And I also just learned a ton from reading. Um, so I constantly got books as gifts. And um, in the time that my parents did have, they took me to the library a lot. So I was spending a lot of time reading books and um, read lots of fiction. But then also some of the most interesting things that I read were um, books about the natural sciences. So I would check out books that are like, here's everything you need to know about wolves or here's everything you need to know about the ocean. Um, so all of these things were like always so fascinating to me. Um, and I always loved learning about this stuff in school too. So math and science were always my favorite subjects in school, uh, even though I wasn't very good at it. 
So um, in high school, I actually, like I got a C in high school trig um, and I was like doing kind of terribly on like AP biology and chemistry. But then um, what really made me continue um, like my love for science was actually science fairs. So in middle school, I started doing these science fairs. Um, it was required, but then I, I think I was one of like the few people out of um, my friends that like secretly really enjoyed it. Um, everyone was like, oh, this is just like something we have to do for school. But I was like, oh, this is actually kind of interesting. Um, so for the first three years of science fairs, I did uh, botany projects. So one of my projects that uh, placed third place in the category botany was growing uh, beans in different concentrations of vitamin C. And the more vitamin C I gave the beans, the taller the stalks grew. Um, <laughs> so that was like my first uh, really kind of like formulated uh, journey into science. So it was a pretty structured way of like learning the scientific method, like, you know, acquiring my own materials, uh, making my own scientific protocols, and then, you know, tracking my, my bean plants as they grew. Um, all of this stuff was like actually really exciting to me. So then I kept doing this. Um, and eventually in my last year of high school, I made a switch to um, doing a project in medicine and health. So I was doing this as a team project with my friend and we were doing um, a lot of cell counting after school. So we would, after school, we would go to the college nearby and then we would uh, work with this graduate student who was there doing her PhD work, I assume. And then we were just two high schoolers going in there and counting cells uh, just after in after school hours. And it was interesting, but I thought it was a little bit boring, I will say. Sorry to anybody who studies cells, but the process of counting every single cell individually was very mind-numbing to me. And so I was like, okay, I understand the big picture of this work. It seems interesting, but this little day-to-day -day stuff was definitely not for me. Um, and then on the other side of my high school life that was really integral to like everything that I'm doing now was that um, I, uh, participated in the robotics team on my high school. So my team was part of this big organization called First Robotics, um, where every year there's this big game um, that everybody has to like make their robot for. And then at the end of that semester, uh, you compete with other teams in the region, or even if you go to the world competition, you compete with teams around the world. Um, that So on that, I was part of the mechanical team. So I was uh, responsible for helping actually build the robot. And then I was like, oh, well, this is kind of interesting too. Like I really like working uh, on machines and working with things with my hands and then seeing the full product of what I made, you know, go out and play a game, do a function that I, I built it for. Um, so that was really fascinating too. And at the end of high school, I was like, well, I really like all this biology stuff. And then I really like engineering. And then at some point, I think someone was like, hey, you ever hear about biomedical engineering? I was like, no way, the perfect job does exist. 
And so I found out about um, biomedical engineering through, you know, again, my peers and then through um, my uh, teachers in high school. And then I was like, well, this is amazing. Like I could totally see myself um, being, you know, being a biomedical engineer and creating things that would directly help patients' lives. And I really ran with it. So I did my undergrad in biomedical engineering. And then after that, I was like, give me some more. So then I went on and uh, I went straight into my PhD in bioengineering. That's um, such a fascinating tale. And I want to draw the listeners to a couple of things that I jotted down as you were talking about. Um, first and foremost was your parents' prioritization of education. That was mm-hmm. critical. Um, yes. I, I know my parents the exact same thing. It was, you will get an education and you will, even if you do not love it, you will pursue it. Um, I think the other piece to, to that is the augmented support system um, of your your friends. Um, mm-hmm. And friends are sometimes your family. Um, and um, I think having that sort of support system to support you in, in all of the different avenues of life um, is, is uh, powerful. And then the, the third thing that I wrote down was reading and curiosity. Um, I think that's such a translatable skill for anyone in STEM to have not only the ability to read and harness and not the knowledge that is found within the reading, but then also apply curiosity to it, to learn more, to expand your horizons. Um, So that's just amazing. Um, And then the science fair aspect. Um, I love the science fair aspect because there is nothing that, you know, a classroom education is great but you will not actually learn what you need to learn for a translatable skill in a classroom. Exactly. Learn that through an experiment. Exactly. And that's what really actually gave me the confidence to pursue science because, you know, like I wasn't doing the best in these classes. I was never ever really the top student in any of the classes I was in. But then when I was actually doing the science and, you know, learning something on my own. So these are, like for the most part independent projects too um that you come up with and then i was like okay this is something i can do like even if i you know can't really figure it out in a classroom it seems like i'm i'm doing something that's clicking uh out in the lab right um and and the clicking is and that's that's the other thing is you don't have to be the best to be successful in the lab um you don't have to be the smartest either um you might have to be the most resourceful but (laughs) um so you told us a little bit about how you got introduced to stem um can you talk a little bit about your your life goals and sort of aspirations as you progress through your phd and beyond yeah um so my goal now in the short term is to really do meaningful research um, that will provide the basis for improving patients' lives in the future. So what that means is that right now, some of the work that I'm doing is more on the side of uh, basic science. So basically we need to know how the brain works in certain contexts in order to best uh, address the problems um, of the brain when things go wrong. So. Um, what I specifically study, uh, the, or the patient population that I specifically work with, um, are stroke patients. 
So um, there's so many things that we don't know about the brain. Um, and when it comes to how it goes, you know, how do things like fix when after damage, after an injury, um, how do things maybe not fix to uh, the most optimally? Um, how does that all work? Still trying to figure it out, but um, a lot of these questions, uh, I think, still need to be answered before we are able to you know, develop the most optimal, um, the most precise types of rehabilitation for people um, so they can really optimize their recovery, right? Um, so my that's my short-term goal right now for my PhD. Um, in the future, I am really interested in going into the neurotech device industry. Um, so I actually want to be able to, you know, build these devices, these neurostimulators or these um, neuro recorders um, that will allow us to, um, one, possibly do like better do this kind of research. Um, and two, maybe like take these things through clinical trials and actually see, um, you know, the effects on patients, like almost in real time. So. Um, a lot of these uh, neurostimulator effects are like nearly instantaneous. So like you turn things on and then uh, you see some difference than uh, back when the neurostimulator was off like seconds ago. Um, there are also, I personally work on some more uh, like subtle neurostimulators. So I work with um, transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is TMS. Um, this has been like studied for um, applications in like depression treatment, um, specifically like drug resistant depression. Um, I'm studying it for uh, upper limb motor rehabilitation. So can we stimulate in the brain in a way that helps someone, um, you know, like move better or move in a way that's more optimal um, after they've had a stroke that impeded that movement? And I think with the, the population too, getting older, and sicker for longer. Mm -hmm. I think it's there's definitely a, um, that investment into that um, and the versatility too in the technology. I think that's really um, that was interesting to me in the fact that it can be used for a vast array of whether it's mental health or whether it's like really neurocognitive issues um, is is um, really fascinating. Um, what so you're getting your PhD now and you want to go into neurotech device industry. Um, what part of industry maybe is exciting to you? And what part of industry is a little, um, maybe a little unnerving to you? Yeah. So um, I'll start with what's unnerving and what's unnerving is that it's unfamiliar. So I have um, only been in school this whole time <laughs> and academia feels like an extension of that. Um, but what's exciting is that it feels like you can actually apply the basic research that was done in a lab into something tangible, right? Um, so I was just talking about how some of the work right now that I'm doing is a little bit more basic science. Um, and it's just delving into oh, what are the brain mechanisms involved in these different processes? Um, how do they change after someone has an, an injury like stroke? You know, it's asking questions about how the brain works. Um, but then at the end of this, um, you kind of have 
several different directions you can go with, like how can you apply this knowledge? And that's where I see industry come in is that you can actually apply this knowledge by creating something, um, whether it's creating a protocol for um, these devices to better target the brain in a way that you know improves some of these deficits, um, or it's like making the you know the hardware and the programming for these devices themselves. Um, so that's where I see the um, the the wonderful potential for um, for industry, uh, but there's also like some other daunting aspects of it that. Um, I, I consider a lot whenever I, you know, I think about the broad impact of this work is kind of like how accessible really are these technologies going to be for the people who need them the most. Um, so I, I see this in research. I see an inequality issue in research where it's really hard to recruit um, a diverse population. Um, because with human subjects research, you kind of just get whoever you're getting. Um, and a lot of times our sample sizes are, you know, if we're lucky, dozens of people. Um, dozens of people obviously do not represent the, you know, the, like most Americans, for example, um, let alone less people or most people. Um, and so I think a lot about how when we do research and we recruit participants, like I've worked with participants who can't participate in research because they don't have a vehicle to get to the lab or they can't take the time off or they can't afford to take the time off to do these experiments. Um, like a lot of these issues translate into industry uh, as well. So like if you're running a clinical trial for a device, you're gonna, need a diverse group of people to make sure your uh, device actually works on a vast majority of people. Um, and you're probably going to have to point out the, you know, the subset of the population for maybe for like why this device isn't working for them and then um, figure out what can be done about that. But then, you know, if people are say like they can't afford to participate in this, then we're gonna miss out on a huge subset of the population. Um, and so I, these are some of the issues that are not unique to industry, but I think um, are very real once you uh, get to you know, actually marketing a device and then trying to um, you know, sell it to actual patients and hospitals. Um, there's like the extra steps of like, oh, will insurance cover something like this? These are the things about industry that are um, different from academia that uh, I also consider, but you know, it's like in the same vein of, of issues, right? No, you, you're spot on with that. I mean, clinical research is really challenging because it's so hard to get representation, um, especially minority representation and of um, social determinants of health representation. Um, and I could only imagine with your patient population that you're servicing too, you know, it's not just one and done for the device, you know, there's also augmented physical therapy, occupational therapy, maybe even mental health therapy, um, social workers, all of those sort of wraparound services that you think about. So if they can't, if the patient cannot have access to just the, the research aspect of getting the device, let alone all of the augmented services that they also need to harness, um, 
I could imagine that the hardship there. Yeah, exactly. And like, if our whole goal at the end of the day is to like improve patients' lives, you know, there's not really a point to all the research we're doing if it doesn't reach that patient population. Right. Um, well, let's change on the subject to talk a little bit about something more positive, if you don't mind. Um, no, but I, I want you to speak a little bit about, I, I mean, I understand that you came from an undergraduate in biomedical engineering mm -hmm. and that you wanted to pursue more in depth in biomedical engineering in graduate school. I get that. Um, there are a vast array of different um, programs, obviously. And so how did you choose the one at Pitt? How did you choose your advisor? How did you choose that you wanted to look at, you know, stroke patients as your primary um, patient population? I want to delve a little bit more into yeah. that. Yeah. Um, so I guess we can start in undergrad. Um, in undergrad, I wasn't really sure what direction you could go. I could go with biomedical engineering. Um, everyone kind of said that it was uh, like, if you're a biomedical engineer, you're kind of like a jack of all trades. Um, and you don't really have a focus on anything, at least in the undergraduate level. Um, and I sort of felt that to be true. Like I wasn't really sure what I was going to be doing with this degree afterwards. Um, and so, you know, here comes you know, the peer influence again. And here are my friends doing research in labs with professors and, and grad students. And I was like, cool, that seems interesting. Um, and so I wanted to just start in, in some lab, just any lab, just to see what I can uh, find out about myself maybe, or at the very least pick up some skills along the way. Um, and that's how I landed in this really kind of casual one credit course. It was called Vertically Integrated Projects. Um, and we were uh, split up into these teams and in my team, we were working on something um, to help these um, nurse anesthetists with this problem uh, of aiming their epidural needle. So they had um, several concerns about like sometimes the insertion of an epidural needle um, into the back is not very um, accurate. And sometimes if it's not accurate, then it leads to lots of medical complications um if you can imagine trying to give birth and having a needle go into your back um, there's lots of things that can go wrong in this scenario um, and so they wanted us to create something to minimize this issue so um, what we essentially came up with was a pressure sensing epidural needle and uh, we took this um, project through this pre-accelerator program um, and we did really well so we actually won in that competition at school and then we're like this is amazing so let's do something with this um, and so we uh, consolidated we like formed our own little startup company um, that like about a year or so later um, and we learned we learned so much about just like starting a business in general but specifically for medical devices. Um, so this was where I, for the first time, had like any exposure, like real life exposure to engineering design controls, um, the FDA, just like as a whole, <laughs> um, like human factors engineering. So what kind of mistakes do people generally make? 
um, like focus group interviews? What are you know, some of the pain points uh, from these uh, nurse anesthesia students um, that they're expressing to us? Uh, and how can we incorporate some of that feedback into our design? So that experience, that whole experience has, was so impactful to me um, because it was my first time actually really feeling like I was like doing something um, and I was like creating like a physical product and I was talking to all these different uh, stakeholders and, you know, I was really truly getting the interdisciplinary team experience that people say like biomedical engineers uh, always get. Um, so that was all like within my first uh, two years of uh, undergrad. Um, but I was like, interesting, but I want to go a little more. So I think I, um, my reasoning was that that was very like engineering focused. Um, and I wanted something that was also a little bit more science focused. Um, so I found this lab in um, the mechanical engineering department. Um, the PI is Dr. Ravi Hadamani, and I was uh, helping build these 3D brain models. So um, he was developing um, this type of or this material um, to simulate. So um, TMS, that was the type of stimulation that um, I work on now, actually. So that was my introduction to uh, what is TMS? What is brain stimulation? How does that work? Um, and really, my undergrad program did not teach a whole lot in the core curriculum about neurology, about the brains. But then I was like, oh, well, the brain is fascinating. Like, there's so many things we don't know about the brain. Well, at least I didn't know anything about the brain <laughs> at that point in time. Um, and so that was uh, my first intro into kind of neural engineering. But at, at the time, I didn't know it yet. Um, and then one of my friends had told me that she'd done a summer research program um, where like you get paid, you do a really uh, intensive like research project with some PI, you like fly out to this place. Um, and then at the end of the, the summer, you like present your work and everything. Um, and I, I found out that this thing was called research experience for undergrads, not a super fancy name but it's these REUs. So I was just like Googling like REU brain or like REU engineering bio. And I was just looking up all these, key, you know, these keywords and trying to see if anything will stick. And I applied to a bunch of them. And I didn't hear back from any of them until um, there was this one random day where I was checking my email and this, uh, there was this email from, I think, like the careers office at my school. And it was like, there's an REU at the University of Pittsburgh. It's like open to anyone to apply. And I was like, you know what? I already applied to so many things and I didn't hear back from anything. So I already have the essay. So let's just like, you know, edit that a little bit and send it over and see what happens. And that was the one I got into. <laughs> so um, that summer I spent... Um, several weeks with um, Dr. Doug Weber. Uh, he's now at Carnegie Mellon University, but, but at the time he was at Pitt. And I was um, looking at these muscle synergies using this high density um, EMG array. So EMG is electromyography. It's a way of measuring the electrical signals of the muscles. 
So what I was doing was I was generating these very detailed maps of muscle activation all around the forearm. Um, and that was actually how I got introduced to the world of, uh, of stroke. So uh, this work was actually done in the lab that, I am, that I'm in now. Um, so I, yes, I was very happy to be back here <laughs> when I was interviewing for PhD programs. Um, but I, I thought it was fascinating work. I saw, um, I saw several different stroke patients in just that one summer. And even like, I mean, at the time I didn't know anything about stroke. So I was like, oh, stroke just means that, you know, you have like, uh, like arm weakness afterwards. Um, but then I was like, no, there's like so many different like outcomes uh, from stroke. And I had no idea I was, I think I'd like learned so much in those like eight or nine weeks, like so much more than I had in any of the classes. And again, this comes back to, you know, this, this isn't stuff that you can really learn about yourself from just being in a classroom. You have to like go out and actually do the research to see like, if you're capable of doing something like this, of science. Um, and at the end of that, I was like, yeah, I think I am. So maybe this is what I'll do after graduating. Like I, I felt, I was like on fire after that. I really felt like I um, had done a lot of work in that, that one summer and it seemed impactful. I had direct contact with the patients um, whose data that I was analyzing. So that was, that, you know, that was like the big thing is like, these are the people that your research is going to directly benefit. Um, and I, you know, I interacted with them, I learned from them. And uh, now that's exactly like what I wanted to do. So when I applied for PhD programs, I was like, I want to work with uh, people with like neurological injury. So I, I had this experience uh, with people with stroke. Um, I'd love to continue it. And obviously I applied for the same lab and <laughs> that's where I ended up now. So now my um, advisor is uh, Dr. George Wittenberg. He's um, a physician scientist. He's a neurologist um, at Pitt. And he is probably one of like the most intelligent people I've ever met. Um, he is just like an, an encyclopedia of knowledge. Um, and he has done extensive work in stroke rehabilitation um and he's had like all of the, he so one of the great things is that he has a lot of collaborations with um lots of different departments so um one of the main projects that i work on right now is in collaboration with electrical engineering um i also work with like constantly i also work with occupational therapists um and one of the things that i was looking for was interdisciplinary experience. So it was really important to me that I wasn't just in a bubble of other bioengineers and that I had exposure to other fields, um, other ways of approaching problems, um, just other knowledge in general. Um, and I think all of these collaborations that my PI has exposed me to um, has really, really just enriched the whole PhD experience. You could have solid state um, individuals, you could have electrical engineering, um, and there's something synergistic about that um, and, and powerful too about 
you know, you're, you're focusing on what you are the subject matter expert in, um, but then also you can learn from others in their subject matter expertise, plus what is the translatable skills that are available? And I think there are kind of a great, a great deal of those. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I mean, I can't do a lot of the work that I'm doing without actually like asking some of the occupational therapists on our team. So that a lot of their opinions um, informs some of the designs we make for um, our, you know, our devices and our protocols. Um, what is, because sometimes, a lot of the times actually, what is like optimal for an engineering project is not optimal for patient care because humans are not machines, humans are not computers. Um, they don't always work in the ways that you, you know, would think they would. Um, and so uh, their input has been really invaluable to a lot of the, the stuff that we do. Um, and without, and also then with, without the electrical engineers, like we don't even know what's like possible to do with like our system. So the therapists come with a problem and then we as the engineers have to work with them. We have to use their, uh, their input to, you know, develop the most optimal strategies for their problems. Well, and that's setting you up too, not only for current state problem assessments, uh, benefits obviously, but directionally into industry, and you're going to work with a whole range of different people. This is going to set you up for success because it's going to give you the sort of the back, the background laying of the great foundation. Um, so yeah, that you can. Um, so I think we're we're wrapping up, and I want to be mindful as well. Um, I do want to do a shout out to to the National Science Foundation research experience for undergrad. I also did an REU program, and it was fabulous. Um, the entire summer allotted to actually focusing on an area of research. I established a laboratory, and um, that was awesome because that is, I mean, essentially just you know, making sure that the instruments were forming and functioning a brand new lab. That was just an mm -hmm. incredible experience. Um, and I can totally uh, relate as well to engineers don't actually think similarly to servicemen because of where they put things inside of an instrument are like, what are you doing? Why would you design <laughs> it in that way? I get it. Um, so that was a side note, but also a plug for pursuing an RAU program. Um, the last question that I would like for you to answer is sort of given hindsight 2020, what you know now, and if you were to talk to yourself from, you know, 10, 15 years ago, sort of what kind of words of wisdom and or encouragement would you give to yourself? I would tell myself that it's okay to not know things. Um, I think I got a, had a lot of insecurity like growing up for, and, you know, I was again, like I was never really at the top of my class for a lot of my courses in school. Um, I felt like, you know, everyone around me knew things and I was the only person who didn't know anything. Um, and th that was just like this imposter syndrome that like really festered um, all throughout like, you know, high school and then also in college. Um, and even now, like I sometimes read like a paper on uh, like the title looks like something that I would be, you know, a, a knowledge subject matter expert on. And then I read the content of the publication. I'm like, what is this talking about? Um, but then I'm like learning so much more. So I think the not knowing is ultimately what has driven me to do all these things that I do. 
Um, so I, I kept asking myself, what's out there? Why do things happen? What's going on? Um, and, you know, that that's how I ended up where I am now. And if I had never done that, um, I honestly don't think I would be doing a PhD. Um, I, I didn't know that I could. Um, and I, di I didn't know that I had the skills to. Um, but I, I would tell myself, it's going to be okay. You don't have to know all the things. And the fact that you don't know all the things is what's going to help you get to where you need to go. I think there's something to be um, said for you're, you're very rarely the smartest person in the room. Um, and there's a sense of humility that comes from that as well. Um, so I, I can definitely appreciate that answer. Um, and, and with that, Jennifer, we're so thankful for you joining us today on the podcast and telling us a little bit, not only about your background, but also your current research. It's fabulous work. Um, and wish you the best in the future years to come. And then obviously industry awaits you in every <laughs> facet. Um, so thank you again. And for our listeners, uh, always remember to ask yourself, where does your journey stem from? Bye thank everyone. You.